0: Hey, I'm Noam Weissman, and you're listening to Unpacking Israeli History, the podcast that takes a deep dive into some of the most intense, historically fascinating, and confusing events in Israeli history. All that in just about 20 minutes. Yalla, let's do this. We, the people of Israel, are prepared and anxious to meet the representatives of our neighbors without any preconditions. There are people in Israel and elsewhere say it's impossible to make peace between the Arabs and Israel or the Jewish people. I think they're home. At 5.05 a.m. on the morning of Purim, on February 25th, 1994, a local doctor from Kiryat Arba, the Jewish community with ancient roots on the outskirts of Hebron, called the local IDF command center. The officer in charge, Shlomo Edelstein, picked up. Edelstein remembers the doctor asking to send a jeep to pick him up, which seemed really strange to Edelstein because he knew this man wasn't the doctor on call at the time. And even if it was a real emergency, wouldn't he need an ambulance? But the doctor sounded decisive, so Edelstein ordered a driver, Mati Unger, to go see what was going on. When Unger arrived, the doctor told him that he just needed a quick ride to the nearby Cave of the Patriarchs, located just over a mile away. The short ride seemed ordinary, and the doctor did all the talking. Unger didn't think it was weird that the doctor was wearing his army uniform and carrying an automatic rifle. Violence in Hebron was commonplace and attacks against the Jewish residents had become more and more common. The doctor was frequently on reserve duty, running from one Palestinian terrorist attack to the next, attempting to save as many lives as possible. Unger figured that if the doctor needed a quick morning lift, he probably had a good reason. When the doctor approached the cave, the soldiers guarding outside were just as nonchalant. One soldier asked the doctor why he was there so early and in army uniform. The doctor responded by mumbling something about miluim, Hebrew for reserve duty, and walked in. The small Abraham hall underneath which Abraham and Sarah, you know, the first Jewish parents and the ancestors of three major world religions, Judaism, Islam, and Christianity, are traditionally said to be buried, was almost empty, with a handful of Jews getting ready for morning prayers. The doctor walked over to the green door that connects the Abraham Hall to the Isaac Hall, where according to legend lies the locked door that leads to Gan Eden, the Garden of Eden. Typically, the door would be guarded, but that morning it wasn't. The guards had likely assumed it was early in the morning and there was no need to guard the door now. The doctor walked up to the door and walked through it. After walking through the door, He looked at the beautiful room in which 800 Palestinians were in the middle of their prayer. The doctor took out his rifle and began shooting. By the time security forces came into the Isaac Hall, they found a catastrophic scene with rugs soaked in blood and the bodies of 29 Muslims murdered while praying peacefully. Another 125 wounded. And then, in the corner of the room, lying dead with his head busted open by a fire extinguisher and a blood-soaked yarmulke, was the doctor, Baruch Goldstein? How did we arrive at this tragic moment? Who was Baruch Goldstein? Why did he do what he did? And most relevant to this podcast, how did this affect Israeli history? Before we get into the story and facts, I want to start with one word of caution and really introduction. Today's podcast is not about Palestinian terrorism. I have no interest in giving a pass to Palestinian terrorism, or to equate Baruch Goldstein's terrorism with Palestinian terrorism, doing so is unnecessary and frankly defensive and can come off as apologist. So let's not do that whole thing. Of course, Palestinian terrorism will come up in this episode, but our focus will be on why the Baruch Goldstein massacre is so important. I also want to quickly pose one different question to think about throughout this episode. Do you think Baruch Goldstein is a lone wolf, a, quote, bad apple, or was he produced in some sort of environment which could have led to his act? Think about it. It's not an easy question. I'd love to hear from you, so email me at noamadunpacked.media. I myself go back and forth on it, but try to think about this question throughout this episode. What do we need to know about Baruch Goldstein? For one, Growing up, he was not known as Baruch, but as Benji. Baruch Goldstein was born in 1956 in Brooklyn, New York, to an Orthodox Jewish family. He had a Jewish education and earned a medical degree from Albert Einstein College of Medicine in the Bronx, New York City. He was known to speak softly and act piously. He joined the Jewish Defense League, or JDL, an organization founded by Rabbi Meir Kahane that was considered radical by many. Goldstein had known Kahane well since he was a child. For many, the JDL's purpose to fight anti-Semitism, to stand tall and proud as Jews, was noble. And for others, their methods were considered violent and counterproductive. Goldstein immigrated to Israel in 1982. After making Aliyah, he served as an emergency physician in the Israeli army and lived in Kiryat Arba, a small Jewish community bordering Hebron. He reconnected with Kahana in Israel, and the two developed a very close relationship. Kahana loved his doctor disciple. "Quote: There is no one like Baruch, no one so willing to sacrifice." End of quote. Prophetic words, certainly depending on how you understand the word sacrifice. Goldstein became involved in the Kach political party that Kahana had founded about a decade earlier in Israel. Kahana developed a small but serious following of devotees. Noted author and former member of JDL Yossi Klein Halevi describes Kah as minuscule and even marginal among the settlers, but in Kiryat Arba there were many devotees. Some Jewish Israelis were convinced that Palestinians and Arabs in the surrounding countries would never agree to live in peace with the Jewish state and with every act of Palestinian terrorism, their positions hardened. So, followers of Kahana appreciated his aggressive stance against territorial concessions and his plain-talking style. He also advocated for the expulsion of Arabs from Israel and the West Bank, once saying, I don't say we have to do something about the Arabs. I say we have a problem and here's my answer. Throw them out. Kahana preached that one of the main purposes of the Jewish people was to destroy Amalek, the biblical tribe that attacked the Israelites while in the desert and continued through each generation to try and destroy the Jews. Amalek represents the most reprehensible behavior possible, the most immoral violence, the act of vultures who prey on the weak. And naturally, Purim became a favorite Jewish holiday for followers of Kahana. Because, as the Megillah points out, the antagonist, Haman, was a direct descendant of Agag, who was an Amalekite king. But for many of the Jewish-Israeli communities, his passion and style in achieving his goals by any means went too far. For example, he was implicated in conspiracies to kidnap a Soviet diplomat and bomb the Iraqi embassy in the US. He was also arrested dozens of times in Israel for a variety of offenses. Including planning attacks against Palestinians in response to their terrorist assaults on Israelis. In 1990, an Egyptian American terrorist dressed as an Orthodox Jew assassinated Kahana after Kahana finished giving a speech at the Marriott Hotel in New York City. There's a lot more to say about the history of Kahana, we barely scratched the surface, and that's an episode for another time. What's important? Is that Goldstein viewed him as his teacher and his rabbi who shared similar visions about what Israel should be? The year before Goldstein's rampage, 1993, saw 26 terror attacks against Israelis, the largest number in almost 15 years, and the second highest total in the history of the state up until that point in time. 1994 was even more deadly, with a record 42 terror attacks recorded against Israelis. This was supposed to be during the peace process of Oslo. Instead of peace, fear and terror gripped Israeli society. As a medical doctor, Goldstein was exposed to the trauma of these attacks firsthand and witnessed a close friend murdered in 1993. Goldstein referred to the enemy as the new Amalek and as, quote, Arab Nazis. The night before he killed the 29 Arab worshippers in the Cave of the Patriarchs, Goldstein himself prayed in the cave, a regular prayer place for him on the Jewish side of the holy site. The holiday of Purim began that evening. According to those who were there with him, Palestinians on the other side of the partition began to taunt the Jews, interrupting their prayers and screaming that the Jews should be slaughtered. Multiple witnesses said Goldstein appeared distraught. On the morning of February 25, 1994, Goldstein wasn't just carrying his Galil assault rifle. He was also carrying with him accumulated humiliations of Hebron. Yossi Klein Alevi says it best. He was carrying with him, quote, the Jewish pilgrims confined by Muslim rulers to the seventh step of the building, the massacre of the Jews in 1929, which was in Hebron, the terrorist attacks that embittered the Jewish return after 1967. This is what he carried. The political climate, and terror gripping the country would only have reinforced his beliefs in Kahana's more radical ideas. Let's be clear, and this is where there is good debate on both sides. Say what you will about Mayor Kahana, his name will surely bring about one's passions. One side says it was his extremist teachings that laid the groundwork for this heinous terrorist behavior. I can wrap my head around that. On the other side, the argument goes Kahana did not advocate for Baruch Goldstein to do this. As a former teacher, I can also empathize with this. Do I deserve all the blame for when my students do something bad or all the praise when they do something good? Chew on that question. So that is the story of the shooting. Let's take a look at the reaction. Immediately after the shooting, there was widespread rioting and protests by Palestinians. Youth at the Al-Aqsa Mosque on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem threw rocks at police station below. Hundreds of rioters attempted to attack Jewish worshippers at the Western Wall with police firing tear gas and rubber bullets to push back the crowd. In the larger Arab world, many leaders called for revenge attacks against Jews and terror organizations perpetrated a series of attacks against Israeli civilians, including the death of a 79-year-old Israeli axed to death in Kfar Saba. After the attack on the Cave of the Patriarchs, Many left-wing Israelis blamed Goldstein for provoking Palestinian revenge, while many right-wing Israelis responded by arguing that Hamas needed no motivation to kill Jews. They were already quite happy to do this. So, how did the Israeli government and religious community react to something so horrible? Did they applaud the moment or condemn it? Immediately following the attack, the Israeli government condemned it. Immediately. Israeli Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin called Goldstein an embarrassment to Judaism, and in a telephone call to PLO leader Yasser Arafat, he referred to the attack as a loathsome, criminal act of murder. Foreign Minister Shimon Peres called the murders a frightening expression of cruelty devoid of human morality and a horrifying act which stands out in shocking contrast to our basic Jewish values. The government also took swift and decisive action against Jewish extremist groups in the West Bank. It arrested followers of Kahana, issued detention orders against individuals deemed threats to public security, demanded that certain settlers turn in their weapons, and barred those same settlers from entering Arab towns. Among the Jewish religious community as well, the overwhelming response was one of condemnation, revulsion, and shame. Dozens of Israeli rabbis, many settlers and many from the settlement communities signed a letter saying that there can be no forgiveness for the murder of people at prayer. Also, the rabbinic establishment around the world came down hard against Goldstein's act. Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, the chief rabbi of Great Britain at the time, said, such an act is an obscenity and a travesty of Jewish values, that it should have been perpetrated against worshippers in a house of prayer at a holy time Makes it a blasphemy as well. Violence is evil. Violence committed in the name of God is doubly evil. Violence against those engaged in worshiping God is unspeakably evil. In America, multiple Jewish organizations plan joint memorial observances with Muslim communities. In the city of Hebron itself, a policy was enacted. In which the small Jewish Israeli community who lived in the city were separated from the rest of the 120,000 Palestinian residents, a policy still in place today. The Israeli government also paid compensation to Goldstein's victims and passed administrative detention orders against people seen as threats to public security. They disarmed any Jewish settlers suspected of using their weapons for purposes other than self-defense and outlawed what they viewed as two extremist organizations, Kach and Kahanachai Authorities even denied the Goldstein family and supporters the permission to bury him in the Hevron Jewish Cemetery. One prominent rabbi, who lived across the Green Line in Judea and Samaria, the West Bank, to give you some context, Rabbi Aaron Lichtenstein, someone who I've always admired, wrote that there should be a clear protest which expresses not just disassociation, but also disgust and shock. We must do so. And here's the key not, quote, to protect our public image, but to preserve our self image. In other words, it's not about how others will think of us after this horrific attack, it's about our own conception of who and what we are, and more importantly, what we are not. That thought sticks with me to this day. At the end of the day, we have to live with ourselves, our choices our communities, and our values. The response to Goldstein's attack also revealed an uncomfortable divide in the religious Jewish world. Although the overwhelming majority, and I need to stress this, condemned Goldstein's actions, there were still a thousand people who attended his funeral, and the heads of the yeshivas in Kiryat Arba eulogized him with full honors. A small minority of Jews even treated Goldstein as a hero, arguing that Palestinians had been planning a massacre of Jews and Goldstein had simply preempted them. It also brought up some other points of tension in Israeli society. For many years, it has been customary that in the aftermath of Palestinian terror attacks, the homes of families are often destroyed by the Israeli government. No such punishment was meted out to the Goldstein family. Should it have been? Proponents argue, of course, terrorism is terrorism. Opponents say, slow down. Demolishing houses is not meant to be a punishment, but a deterrent. And while we can all agree that Goldstein should be condemned in the clearest of terms, we should also agree that Jewish terrorism is not something that requires deterrence. It simply is not that prevalent. It's also important to point out that there were and still remain some supporters of Barak Goldstein's actions within Israeli society. Michal Ben-Horin edited a book about Goldstein called Baruch HaGever, a play on words based on the line from Jeremiah chapter 17 in the Tanakh, referencing blessed is the man that trusts in God and whose hope the Lord is, but is also a Hebrew pun referencing that Baruch was HaGever or the man. Ben-Horin is convinced of what he and many others in his community see as Baruch's virtue. This is a quote from him. He prevented a large massacre in chevron's jewish settlement and we visit his grave in order to implicitly say jewish lives are not disposable in fact this is a crazy story when i was a high school principal i took the seniors to poland and israel each year one year i decided to take the students to chevron on the tour of the city two students needed to use the restroom but there was nowhere to go the tour guide told us about the kindness of the residents that we can just knock on a door. And so we did. As my two students scurried to the bathroom, I noticed a gigantic portrait of a man I recognized. He had the side locks, long beard, and was handsome. Could it be? Baruch Goldstein? I summoned the courage, or maybe the chutzpah, and asked the woman why she had a gigantic portrait of this man in her house. She said to me, He was a tzaddik and kadosh. He was a righteous and holy man. I stood there silently, almost frozen. I'd like to think I was being a good listener, but I think I was just so taken aback that all my words were stuck. You can imagine the awkward silence as I waited for my students to finish up. But anyway, no matter what precipitated it, the massacre was a crime beyond comprehension. And both the memory and the legacy of this event have proven to be enduring. In the short term there were more palestinian terror attacks against israel little more than a month after the baruch goldstein massacre a palestinian drove a vehicle filled with explosives next to a crowded bus stop in Afula, israel as the passengers began to board the bus he detonated an explosive device killing himself and eight others suicide bombings carried out by palestinian terrorists against israeli civilians in israel was becoming a real thing the first of many Hamas claimed responsibility, calling it retaliation for what they called the Hebron Massacre. Goldstein's actions also challenged those who said that the problem of terrorism was exclusively on the Palestinian side. There's a certain naivete to such a notion. No religion, faith, or people is impervious to butchering and bastardizing what they've learned. One year later, Yigal Amir, another Orthodox Jew who, like Goldstein, was also identified with the religious Zionist movement, assassinated Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin. Don't worry, we're going to unpack this moment in another episode. Jewish terrorism, to be sure, as a phenomenon, is very rare and typically a reaction to some major external threat, such as waves of terror attacks against Israel. Thankfully, it has been effectively stopped in most cases by the work of Israeli intelligence services, but it has been a subject of interest for many. There are actually a few examples of Jewish extremism or terror in the last decade. Just this past year, the hit show Our Boys was one of the hottest shows available on HBO, at least in the Jewish community. The show tells the story of the 2014 kidnapping and murder of young Palestinian boy Mohammed Abu Kader by three Jewish extremists and the investigation into the incident. The religious Jewish men responsible for the murder said it was in retaliation for the kidnapping and murder of three Israeli teenagers, Ayal, Gilad, and Naftali, that same summer. Interestingly enough, Prime Minister Bibi Netanyahu referred to the show as anti-Semitic propaganda in the way it portrayed the Israeli side. I'm not here to debate Bibi. He is a much better debater than I, so I'd lose anyway. But I can tell you that from my perspective, the way Israeli society dealt with its challenges is something to praise, not hide from. The healthiest of families don't bury their problems under the rugs. That's why I can say when a Jew carries out an act of terror, Israeli officials condemn it in the strongest terms. And most Israelis are ashamed, if not outraged. The Israeli and Jewish communities as a whole don't make the terrorist a martyr. They don't call for more attacks. We need to be able to own responsibility when it begins to rain and not just when the sun is shining. I like that about my people. At the outset of this podcast, I said this episode is really not about comparing Jewish and Palestinian terrorism. I do, however, think there is value in considering a stark contrast between the response to terrorism amongst Israelis and Palestinians. Of course, Israelis and Palestinians are in different positions, But when a Jew carries out an act of terror, Israeli officials typically condemn it in the strongest of terms. And most Israelis, like I said earlier, are ashamed, if not outraged. In contrast, in the past, the Palestinian leadership has too often been known to celebrate and hand out candies when a terrorist commits a crime, even hailing the terrorist as a martyr and calling for more attacks sometimes, in addition to giving financial support to terrorist families. Ultimately, this episode is about us listening to the story of Baruch Goldstein. We need to be able to learn, listen, and hear about these darker events and moments in Israeli history as well, so we can commit to understanding why they happened and what we can do to prevent them from happening again. With that, let's try to summarize this episode with five fast facts. Number one, Jewish extremism, though rare, exists and unfortunately at times has manifested into violent terror. Number two, Baruch Goldstein, who was born, raised, and educated in New York, was a medical doctor living in Kiryat Arba. Number three, the actions taken by Baruch Goldstein were condemned by Israeli politicians, religious leaders, and the general public. Number four, even today there is a very small minority group of Jews who see Baruch Goldstein as a hero and even make pilgrimage visits to his grave. Number five, after Goldstein's actions, both Kach and Od Kahanachai, extremist political groups connected to Rabbi Kahana were outlawed and numerous practical steps were taken to curb Jewish extremism in Israel. Those are the facts, but here is one enduring lesson as I see it. Abraham Lincoln said something like, The philosophy of the schoolroom in one generation will be the behavior of the next generation. Who knows if this is empirically true, but intuitively, it makes sense, at least to me. The aftermath of the horrific attack on worshippers by Baruch Goldstein raised questions that caused Israelis and Jews around the world to do some deep soul-searching. Is there something the Jewish community could have done to prevent this? It caused real cheshbon nefesh, or accounting of the soul. Who are we? What do we stand for? And how do we promote the values that we hold so dearly throughout our nation? When events like this massacre occur, how do we deal with them? If you haven't listened to our episode on Seen, go back and give it a listen. We talk about some similar themes in that episode too. Two totally different events, but similar themes emerge. So while I don't think it's my place to answer the question of whether Goldstein was just a bad apple or a result of dangerous philosophy, I do want to say that the Lincoln quote is something we all ought to internalize. A better tomorrow starts today. With that, thanks for listening to another episode of Unpacking Israeli History. Make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a rating if you enjoyed listening. If you have any questions, comments, or just want to talk Israeli history, shoot me an email at noam at unpacked.media. I'd love to hear from you. In the next episode, we're going to be covering another intense moment that changed Israel and the course of the Israeli-Palestinian peace process. Maybe the assassination of Prime Minister Abin. This podcast comes from Unpacked, a division of Open Door Media. I'm your host, Noam Weissman. Our producer is Rachel Kastner. Research and writing by Avi Posen. Additional research and writing by Akiva Potok, Yitz Brilliant, Alicia Stein, Benjamin Elterman, Oren Peleg, and Ellie Lichstein, Edited by Robert Perra. Unpacking Israeli History is generously sponsored by Larry and Andrea Gill.